0: Theologian John Calvin began his monumental Institutes of the Christian Religion by saying that true and solid wisdom, quote, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. Over the past two Sundays, we focused on shoring up our knowledge of God especially with regard to God, the son and God, the spirit. We said that Jesus Christ is the eternal, co-equal, uncreated second person of the Trinity, who in his incarnation is fully God and fully man. He lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death for sinners, physically rose from the dead, triumphantly ascended to the father's right hand, and will one day return as king and judge. Meanwhile, the Holy Spirit is the eternal, co-equal, uncreated, third person of the Trinity. He is personal, not some kind of vague force, and he empowers God's people, identifies who God's people are, reveals God to us, and glorifies the Father and the Son. We don't want to make honest mistakes or malicious heresies when it comes to our thinking about God. He's just that important. But today we do shift our attention from our knowledge of God to a solid biblical knowledge of ourselves. We want to answer the question posed by the theologians known as the who. Who are you? Anybody? Okay, thank you. Who are you? Who am I? Who are we? To answer that question, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the people in this room, new faces and old faces, friends and family, and more important than any earthly ties, brothers and sisters in Christ, people made in your image. Lord, thank you for the people who are here today, this place that we have to worship you week in and week out. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. We hear so many mixed messages about who you are and who we are from all kinds of sources. So, Lord, I pray that you would bear fruit in our study of your word to help us get a firm, inspired grasp of who you are, who we are, and the truth about our world. Help us be attentive in our study of your word this morning. Thank you for revealing yourself to us Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we have been, we can be redeemed by the body and blood of Christ. And that we can be empowered by your spirit to be the people you made us to be. I pray that you would watch over us as we continue thinking about that this morning. And may our thinking, may our studying, may our prayers and our singing all be glorifying to you. We love you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So who are we? Well, first, we, as in all of humanity, are created by God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We are created by God. That sounds pretty basic, doesn't it? Theologically speaking. But it's incredibly important for us to remember for a number of reasons. It should drive us to thank God. ...for the simple fact of our existence. It should give us a healthy recognition of our limitations. And it should remind us that as God's creatures, we ultimately answer to him. Contrary to popular belief, none of us is God. But we are created by God. And knowing this basic truth ought to give us both a deep sense of dignity which we'll talk about more in a moment, as well as a deep sense of responsibility. Second, Genesis 1 tells us that we are created in God's image. Genesis makes it clear that everything God creates is good. But it's also clear that humanity is different than the rest of creation. Sun, moon, water, land, plants, animals, they are all good. But only humanity is made in God's image. There is a greater sort of dignity to human life than there is in anything else that God made. And all of us, every human being, bears that image. That includes male and female, old and young, rich and poor, unborn and dying. It includes all people of varying ethnicities and mental or physical capacities. There is nothing a person can do, no matter how awful, distasteful, or even evil, to rid themselves of the image of God. And third, Genesis 1 tells us that we are made for God's Glory. As his image bearers, we are meant to reflect God's attributes in the world. We're called to steward his creation. Adam and Eve were to tend and work the Garden of Eden in accordance with God's good rule and his good design. Every human being has a purpose. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, Our reason for existence is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Every human life has meaning, significance, and worth. No one is just a clump of cells. No one is a mere product of chance. No one is a waste of breath. So who are you? You're created by God in his image for his glory. David puts it this way in Psalm 8. The first couple of verses, he praises God for how majestic his name is in all the earth. But then he says in verse 3, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the Son of Man that you care for Him. You look up at the sky and you realize just how small and seemingly unimportant we are. And yet the God who created everything cares for us. Why? Because we're made in His image and we're made for His glory. David also says in Psalm 139, starting in verse 13, When as yet there was none of them. Your life is not an accident. Your life is not a mistake. You have a kind of dignity that nothing and no one can take away from you, which is not dependent upon your talents, your abilities, or your production. And you have a God given purpose, one you don't have to invent, discover, or prove. And this is all good news. Because there are countless lost, confused, and discouraged people in our world. Maybe some in our lives or even in this room who need to know these beautiful truths about who we are. But, and there's always a but, If we're seeking to articulate a thoroughly biblical anthropology, to understand who we are, there's more that we have to discuss. The positive stuff we just mentioned is incredibly important, and we should shout it from the rooftops. But it's also not where Christians are most likely to make honest mistakes or commit malicious heresies. We like the stuff that we just covered. But if we read past Genesis 1 and 2 and get into Genesis 3, we see where things have gone wrong. We're created by God in His image for His glory. But sadly, that isn't the end of humanity's story. So back to our core question. Who are we? We are fallen creatures. We are fallen creatures. Adam and Eve sinned against God. And as a result of their rebellion, the death and decay that God warned them about intruded upon his good creation. We see God's judgment on Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 16. This is God speaking to Adam and Eve after they fall into sin. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. To guard the way to the tree of life. In the New Testament book of Romans, the Apostle Paul writes in chapter three that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In chapter five, Paul writes that death came into the world through one man. Adam. And through Adam's sin, death then spread to all men. Because all sinned. We are both victims of Adam's sin and perpetrators of our own. As a result, we stand condemned before God. Like Adam and Eve, we are exiled from his holy presence. Let's think back to those wonderful truths of Genesis 1 that were created by God in his image for his glory. Well, how does the tragedy of Genesis 3 affect those truths? Well, rather than rightly understanding ourselves as created by God, we tend to try to make ourselves God. Martin Luther wrote, The natural man cannot want God to be God. Rather, he wants himself to be God and God not to be God. Think about the serpent's words to Eve in the Garden of Eden. He promised that if she ate the fruit, she would be like God. What about the image of God within us? Well, sadly, that image is corrupted, tainted, compromised. By God's grace, it has not been utterly destroyed. But there's still an undeniable sense in which the image of God within us needs to be restored to its former glory. And as for our purpose of glorifying God, well, sinners aren't exactly great at that. Paul writes in Romans 1 that we exchange the glory of God for all kinds of other degrading, dishonoring, and destructive deceptions it's not pretty but according to Ligonier Ministries state of theology study the fall of Genesis 3 is a tragedy that we're tempted to soften or even outright deny some 57% of American evangelical Christians believe that quote everyone sins a little but most people are good by nature. 66% of Americans overall agree. Now, sure, you've got your few bad apples. Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, Freddy Krueger, St. Louis Cardinals fans. But those are the exceptions to the rule. History has a handful of horrifying villains, terrible people, but everybody else is more or less okay before God, right? Well, sorry to burst your bubble, but the Bible simply doesn't paint such a rosy portrait of who we are. In Psalm 51, King David confesses the presence of sin from his very conception Isaiah 64 describes us as unclean and polluted. In Jeremiah 17, the Lord says the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Think back again to the book of Genesis. I mean, how do things go in the chapters immediately following Adam and Eve's sin? Cain murders his brother Abel in chapter 4. People start dropping like flies in chapter 5. Humanity commits a sin so heinous in chapter 6 that God floods the world and spares just one family. And then in chapter 9, that one family shows themselves to be just as messed up as everybody else. That theme continues across the rest of the Old Testament. Israel promises to obey God and then they don't. They get punished. They cry out to God and God helps them, but they never learn their lesson. From the lowest to the highest, from the beggar to the king, God's people prove themselves to be thoroughly sinful. Scripture has a lot of vocabulary for sin, falling short making a mistake, missing a mark, rebelling, revolting, transgressing, lawlessness, unrighteousness, injustice, disobedience, and we are good at all of it. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's a reference to Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is why many theologians speak of humanity's total depravity. One theologian defines total depravity as the entire absence of holiness. Now, total depravity does not mean that people are as bad as we can possibly be. Even sinners can do good, virtuous, selfless things. But it does mean that we are so sufficiently fallen that we cannot possibly save ourselves. We are fallen creatures. And that leads us to the final truth about who we are. We are in need of redemption. It's important to note that this redemption has to come from outside of us. Remember what Paul called us in Ephesians 2 verse 1. He said, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead people have nothing to contribute, nothing to offer. They must be revived by somebody else. Imagine an EMT giving someone CPR or shocking them with paddles. And unfortunately, the person doesn't come back to life. Then the EMT just throws up their hands and backs up and says, well, I did what I could, but they were just not willing to work with me. It's not how it works. A dead person can't work with you. You have to help them. And thankfully, the Bible tells us that God is all too willing to help dead sinners who need redemption from outside of ourselves. them. All the way back in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve fell, God warned the serpent that one day a child of the woman would bruise his head. Historically, Christians have called this verse the proto evangelion which means the first gospel. And we call it the first gospel because we understand it to be a subtle hint at the future redemption for sinners that God would accomplish through Jesus Christ. Those terrible verses in Romans, chapters 3 and 5, where Paul says that all have fallen short and death has spread to all men. Those verses conclude with the redemption secured for us by Christ. We are justified by God's grace as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. And yeah, Adam brought death to all people. But Jesus Christ brings life. Now, there may still be some theological hair splitting and disagreements about the finer points of a sinner's conversion. Calvinists say one thing. Arminians say another and both make decent arguments. But none of us should be a Pelagian. A Pelagian is someone who might agree with that 57% of American evangelicals. Sure, humans sin a little, but we're good by nature. And if just given the opportunity, we can right the ship without any special work of God's grace. We can at least partially save ourselves. We just have to learn enough do enough, try hard enough. If we're not all that bad to begin with, who needs salvation as a one-sided, gracious gift of God? We just need to meet him in the middle, right? Well, based on what we've read today, that is either an honest mistake or a malicious heresy. So who are you? Who am I? Who are we? We are created by God in His image for His glory, but fallen into sin and in need of redemption. And who is Jesus Christ? He's the only Redeemer up to the task. By faith in Him, we can be reconciled to our Father. Thanks to Him, the image of God within us can be restored. Because of him, we can be sanctified by the Holy Spirit to fulfill our purpose of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. But practically speaking, why do you need to know all of this? Well, a solid biblical anthropology should affect how you view, how you think about, how you talk about, and how you treat the human beings around you. And yourself, for that matter. No one is an accident. We all have God-given dignity. And our purpose is to know God. That last point ought to motivate us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the world around us. Because you will never meet another human being. No matter how dislikable they might be. No matter how much you disagree with them you will never meet another human being who is not made in God's image. In addition, a solid biblical anthropology will help you manage expectations for life in a fallen world. We shouldn't be surprised when sinners sin. We shouldn't be shocked when things go wrong. We shouldn't be stunned that our greatest attempts at reaching utopia, whether they come through political revolutions Technological advances or any other worldly means fall short in the end. Now, should we be sour about everything all the time? No. Even in the midst of our fallen world, creation is still good. God is still sovereign and his grace is evident in countless ways, seen and unseen. But we should be skeptical Of those who promise us that if we can just learn enough, change enough, and fix enough, we can reverse the curse. We can't. And that kind of biblical anthropology ought to leave us longing for a new world. While we Christians work hard to make our world a better place, we also know that true deliverance, true redemption comes only through Christ. And that's why we long for his promised return. Paradise won't be reached through human effort. It will be seen when Christ comes. The happy ending of the biblical story comes at the very end of the book. In the book of Revelation, when God dwells with us and we dwell with him upon Christ's return. That's what we look forward to. So one final time, who are we? When we look in the mirror, there are things to celebrate and there are things to grieve. We celebrate the fact that God made us in his image for his glory. But we grieve that we are fallen creatures in need of redemption. But then when we take the magnifying glass away from ourselves and point it to God, we have reason for hope. Because we quickly learn that God is at work to redeem sinful creatures, to redeem our fallen world through his son, Jesus Christ. You can be washed. You can be forgiven. You can be saved. You can be given a new identity. One not dominated by sin and death, destined for judgment, but one marked by righteousness and life, destined for glory. By faith in Jesus Christ, you can look forward to the day when you will finally, truly, and ultimately be who God made you to be, which is someone who worships, glorifies, and enjoys him forever. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word that helps us get an honest look at ourselves. All the good things, the fact that you made us, you didn't need us, you lacked nothing outside of yourself, and yet here we are, which is just a testament to your grace and your generosity. You made us in your image, and even as sinners, that image still remains. Thank you for the dignity that you've given us. And you made us for a purpose that even though sin has thwarted that purpose, our lives have significance and meaning, and there's an end to our existence. None of us is an accident. And Lord, as hard as it is to read about the honest truth of the fall and just how messed up we really are, thank you for the honest truth that makes us aware of our need for redemption. Thank you that sin does not have to be our defining feature, but rather you redeem us through your son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I pray that we would turn to you in faith, in gratitude, in worship, in obedience, in joy, that we would trust you in the power of your spirit to restore us to the identity you always intended for us, to be your servants, to be your children, to be in your presence. That's who we're meant to be, Lord. And thank you for your work of bringing that to reality. We love you. We honor you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.